Please join me in prayer. Father God, you have loved us with devotion and kindness that withheld nothing and forgave everything. Turn our hearts now to your word. Teach us to treasure it, abide by it, and remembering it is by learning and obeying your commands. We will know we love you and love each other. Amen. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From 1845 to 1847, Henry David Thoreau conducted an experiment in what he called the new economics. He wanted to see what the actual cost of sustaining a human life would be. And so he went out into a cabin on the edge of Walden Pond in northern Massachusetts and in his own words said this, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. I wanted to live deep and suck all the marrow out of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And that desire to embrace life for all that it is and to you know, reject all that is not life, uh, to spend uh, no more time chasing after what really won't give life is the heartbeat of every decision to you know, ditch the office and the mortgage and become a digital nomad, right? to go out there and live that van life to, out on the open road. And there's something to that. Like it's, it's more than just escapism. It is a longing for a life that is truly life, uh, a longing for an antidote for everything that ills us in modern life. We long for simplicity. The problem with simplicity is that life is complex. We live complex lives. 
And this is true not only in terms of our calendars, but it's true in terms of the roles we play. Simultaneously, we are husbands, sons, and fathers, or wives, daughters, mothers. We're also employees, or managers, or employers, or student athletes, or coaches, or mentors, or teammates, or volunteers, or board members, caregivers. And part of our development into maturity is to know how to, you know, move from one role to the next or to slide effortlessly in between the various roles that we play. And all of these roles have their own kind of internal logic to them. Our brains learn how to decode data from all the inputs of life and all the different places that we go to to help us navigate the various roles, each of which has its own values, its own norms, its own histories, its own behavioral expectations, and all of which requires us, in the words of the poet T.S. Eliot, to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. As a result, we got a lot of demands on us. And the demands are never just about our time, too, because all of these roles and the commitments, all of them are vying for more of our attention, and with it, a bigger portion of our hearts, and so we end up living with divided hearts. One of those who saw this clearly was the Quaker intellectual Thomas Kelly. He describes this nagging feeling of the strain of modern life like this. We feel honestly the pull of many obligations and try to fulfill them all, and we are unhappy, uneasy, strained, oppressed, and fearful we shall be shallow. We have hints that there's a way of life vastly richer and and deeper than all this hurried existence, a life of unhurried serenity and peace and power. If only we could slip over into that center We have seen and known some people who seem to have found this deep center of living where the fretful calls of life are integrated, where no as well as yes can be said with confidence. And I want you to notice his capitalization of the word center there, that that place where we are so completely in God's presence or where the, the, the place where the the vine ends and the branch begins is fuzzy, where all of life is brought into order. That is what we long for. But the truth is, and you know this, we don't just live complex lives. We are irreducibly complex people. We don't even understand ourselves. And we can't really compartmentalize as we are expected to do. All of the spheres that we are in end up shaping us toward their end in one way or another. We try to make sense of the irreducible complexity of our lives in all kinds of ways. Uh, this is what's you know, behind the battery of personality tests that promise to help us better understand ourselves, whether that is the 16 Myers-Briggs temperaments, the 12 combinations of the disc profile, or which Harry Potter house you would be sorted into. Where are my Ravenclaws at? None of you? There we go. Thank you, Shay. When I arrived here at All Souls, there was a lot of talk about the Enneagram, and some of you are into it. Some of you too much. <laughs> and while all that stuff can be interesting and, and helpful to an extent of like, yes, it's helpful to know how we operate in times of stress and in times of health, The thing is, none of those things can tell you who you are because you're not only that. You aren't any one thing. The best interpreters will tell you that you've got all of these dimensions in you. Some of them are dominating the control panel of your life a little bit more than others. 
In his book on simplicity, Richard Foster describes our internal state like this. Within all of us is a whole conglomerate of selves. And all these selves are rugged individualists. No bargaining or compromise for them. Each one screams to protect his or her vested interest. If a decision is made to spend a relaxing evening listening to Chopin, the business self and the civic self rise up in protest at the loss of precious time. The energetic self paces back and forth, impatient and frustrated. And the religious self reminds us of the lost opportunities for study or evangelistic contact. All the excluded selves filibuster. No wonder we feel distracted and torn. No wonder we overcommit our schedules and live lives of frantic faithfulness. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I was like, yes, so often my heart feels like a committee meeting that has gone off the rails. The formation of our souls is about integrating all these different parts of what we call I into a center, around a center made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the spirits to interact with the deepest part of who we are and to begin the work of transformation throughout all of the layers of who we are. But, but even if you're here and, and you're not sure about God and the, the life of the spirit, uh, when you are not integrated around a center, you know what it's like to feel torn and confused, like you're coming undone, like you are tense and tired all of the time, because there are a lot of centers to choose from. There are lots of paths on offer. Where, like Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If family commitments, for instance, are what you value most, that will be the gravitational center of your heart. That will be the kingdom you seek first. If the narratives that you grew up with about your value being in who you are, what you can do, what you can achieve, then making a name for yourself will be the place where you seek to build a kingdom. And the thing is, for most of us, the center is not straightforward. This, what's at the, the heart of our lives, the thing that's guiding our decisions and our actions, we're not really all that, that clear about it. We are complex people who live complex lives who also have incredibly complex desires. We are full of paradoxes and ambiguities, open-ended questions, and increasingly complicated and conflicted longings. And the truth is that at any given moment, my deepest desire is not the same thing as my strongest desire. Every addict who wants to be clean knows what that's like. But so do all of us. I want to be a good parent. I want to love my children well. I want to be present and attentive. I want them to know God and to love him above all else. I want them to be able to come to me with whatever is on their heart. And I also want to tune them out whenever they start talking about YouTube. I mean, I'm at that stage of life where so much of parenting is just pretending to be interested I want to live a life of contentment and gratitude for all that God has blessed me with. I want to live a life of others-oriented, other-facing generosity. 
I also really want a $3,000 RF lens for my digital camera. I want to enjoy life in community with others, experiencing hospitality and warmth of, of deep fellowship. I also want to be alone with my thoughts. And the thing is, even when our deepest desire is to embrace joy and delight in God, we have stronger desires that distract and inflame and pull us away. This is what the writers of the New Testament call the flesh. The medieval scholar Thomas Aquinas says that every choice is a thousand renunciations. I, I choose to marry this person, that means I can't marry that person. I choose to live in this city, that means I can't live in that city. I choose to spend my time, my energy, my attention in one place, that means I can't spend them somewhere else. But the thing is, we can't have it all. But that's exactly what we want. Teresa of Lisieux tells this story about how when she was seven, one of her older sisters decided that it was time for her to give up her toys. And so she gathered them all into a basket, and she went into the room where Teresa and her sister were playing, and she said, you can choose one of these toys for yourself. The rest I'm going to give away to charity. And her older sister picked a, a colorful ball and started playing with it contentedly, but Teresa was absolutely paralyzed by the decision. And suddenly she just blurted out, I, I choose them all. I want them all. And that's every single one of us. We want it all. Aquinas goes on to say, what would it take to satisfy my endless desire? And in short, he says, everything. I would need to experience everything and be experienced by everything. And desire is so strong, it is why we get up in the morning, it is why we do anything at all. But the church and our culture often take very different tacks about what we are to do with our desire. In the most extreme libertarian circles of our culture, desire is simply an appetite, that it is senseless, no, even sinful to deny. But in the church, sometimes, in some strains of evangelicalism, like the one that I grew up in, Desire is something to be afraid of. Spiritual writer Ruth Haley Barton describes how we silence our desire and we distance ourselves from it because we, it, we are suspicious and afraid of its power. And, and make no mistake, it is powerful. But the problem with running from it or stuffing it down is that Jesus places desire front and center. The very first question he asks in the Gospel of John is a deceptively simple one. He asks, what do you want? That is the first and the most basic question of discipleship. Spirituality is what we do with our desire, where we aim it. As Barton writes, desire makes us act. And when we act, what we do will either lead to greater integration or disintegration within our personalities, minds, and bodies, and to the strengthening or deterioration of our relationship to God, others, and the world. The habits and disciplines we use to shape our desire form the basis for a spirituality. Jesus' take and church history and the bulk of the scriptures is not to 
indiscernibly gratify each of our desires as our culture counsels us to do, nor to suppress every desire as some streams of the church have taught us to do, but rather to trace our desire back to its origins and to find its source in God and to find our center there. Give me an undivided heart, David writes in Psalm 86, that I may fear your name. And if we are honest, we come to God with divided hearts. I want God, but I want comfort and security and a reputation and a name for myself. I want to live in the kingdom in all of its fullness. I also want to be the king and do what I want to do. And I have all of these conflicting desires that tear at my heart and wreak havoc on my soul. Desire, it turns out, is like a wild horse that needs to be tamed. And a way to train it is through the practice of simplicity. Because I want to be real clear, the, the choice is not between complexity and simplicity. The choice is how we pursue simplicity amid all of the complexity of our lives. Simplicity is not going to eliminate complexity. It's not a four-point plan. It's not a clever strategy designed to reduce the mystery of the human person down to its essence. Rather, it is a choice about living a focused life or a scattered one. It is a, choose, a, a, a choice to live a life that is intentional instead of haphazard, or as Rich Viotas put it, a choice to live a deeply formed life over one of superficiality. Last week I noticed that um, simplicity is an inward reality that produces an external lifestyle. And the order of those things is critically important because before it's about decluttering your apartment or your calendar or your tortured relationship with your phone, it is about aiming your heart toward a center that can hold it. It starts in the heart, it moves outward. It is not enough to simplify things you have got to simplify around something and that something has to be able to bear the weight of your deepest longing and this is what Jesus is telling his disciples in our gospel reading therefore I tell you do not worry about your life what you will eat what you were about your body what you will wear for life is more than food and the body more than clothes uh, this is Luke's continuation of what we read in Matthew last week about where treasure will be found, it, not in a life of excess, but in a life that is centered, uh, directed toward God and directed toward others. Therefore, he begins, in light of that reality that life is not about things, don't set your mind, don't set your mental energy on those things, but set them elsewhere. And I know that, you know, whenever... We hear this. It's, it's crazy sometimes we think. We, we think it's just idealism, like money, a place to live. Like those are exactly the things that I worry about, Jesus. I mean, do you know what rent is like in this city? Do you know about the cost of college tuition? Do you know about like an MRI scan? But Jesus is not saying that those things do not matter. He says later, God knows that you need those things. But in tying worry to money or 
Another way to say it, tying anxiety to accumulation, Jesus is offering a read on the world. He's looking out at the, the terrain of our souls, and he is saying something about the complexity of them, that we will orient our hearts around something, whatever it is that is our ultimate concern. And in that sense, everyone, secular or, or not, is religious, because Everyone has something of some sort of ultimate concern. And what we ruminate and think about and fuss over, whatever is most important to us, whatever that thing is, and again, no assumptions, no, no judgment, but whatever it is that you would fill in that blank, be it work or duty or success or comfort or status, whatever it is, whatever is at the forefront of your conscious thoughts, that is your center and all of your desires will flow out of that that is the place that you look to for hope and for healing that is the place that you look to for salvation and you might not be aware of what that is you might not consciously conceive of it as your center and jesus is saying that if and when you have money getting more of it and material possessions and all that becomes about something other than enjoying and sharing life with others, but a thing that you look to for meaning and security, something that tells you you cannot live without me, then you are set for an endless cycle of anxiety because you will never have enough. And the flip side of all of that is when that thing is taken away from you, that is where your hope will get rocked. Because anything impermanent can and often will be taken away. Relationships are lost. Dreams die. Hopes, jobs, the loss of health, all of these things, when we, when we place our hope on things that cannot bear the weight, we end up dying a thousand little deaths by disappointment. So rather than run on that treadmill, Jesus shows another way. Consider, he says, the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. This is my Father's world, Jesus says. This is one in which God provides. We, if we live in constant fear of scarcity, that will lead us to lives of greed and injustice. But if we trust that with God there is abundance, we will be free from a self-centered posture. We will be empowered to love others. And this is important because who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? And since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? This is just a statement about reality. Worry does not in increase the length of your life. Ironically, it shortens it by about 2.8 years. Shocker, Jesus was right. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of its splendor was dressed like one of these, just the natural beauty of the world. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the field, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And this is Jesus not getting down on his disciples. This is a gentle chai. That, that word that's translated little faith is one word in Greek. It's it's like calling somebody a little faith. It's this gentle kind of poke at his disciples. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. And again, heart is the 
executive center of the will in the world of the Bible. It's the place where the will, where the desire, where actions originate. It's why the writer of Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it all of your actions flow. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Now, it's lost in the English, but the same word that is used for run in for the pagan world runs after all these things is the same word Jesus says, but seek his kingdom. He's saying, don't chase after all these things that all of the world is chasing after. I am calling you to a different way of life. Chase instead. Spend your running after the kingdom. Have it as your center, as the most deliberate, purposeful, and intention of your life. Have your focus be to follow Jesus in alignment with the kingdom and then take the kingdom with you wherever you go. Because where you invest your life will come to take over your heart and it will either produce anxiety or it will produce freedom. So how do we find simplicity on the other side of the complexity of our schedules, of our inner lives, of the roles that we play, of our desires. Well, when Jesus says chase after the kingdom, he is giving us an invitation to invest who you are in God's presence and in God's purposes in the world. Just a quick word on each of those. Presence. The starting place of setting your heart on and moving into the kingdom is simply to set your attention on Jesus' presence through the Holy Spirit. This image in John's gospel of abiding in the vine to, to dwell or to make your home in God and have God make his home in you. It's the 18th century brother Lawrence enjoying constant communion in the presence of God while he is washing dishes. And the idea here is like the spirit is not some abstract force. The spirit is a person of the Trinity. And it's accessible to us in even the mundane things of life. From the moment we wake up and have our coffee to start checking emails to driving our kids around in the circular pattern to all the activities, baseball practice, you know, whatever your life is. When you, when you make dinner, when you fold laundry, when you... You, you play the bass, right? When you, when you have a glass of wine, when you read a nighttime story to your kids, whatever your thing is, until you go to bed, you are doing it all under, your whole life is unfolding under the presence of God. If we limit God's presence to overtly religious activities, like quiet times in the morning, or prayer, or reading scripture, or going to church, we are pushing God to the margins of our life and not the very center because at the end of the day, it's a math problem, right? You're spending most of your time doing other things. To set your mind on God is to acknowledge that there is nowhere God is not. As the psalmist said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Everywhere we go, we go in God's presence. And so everywhere we go is an opportunity to participate in what Tish Harrison Warren calls 
the liturgy of the ordinary, to have a running conversation with God about what the two of us are doing together. And in that way, your life becomes a prayer offered in gratitude. And the thing is, when you experience God's presence, your lives will be inextricably linked to God's purpose. The, the paradox of the kingdom is that as we surrender more and more of ourselves to God, we get more and more of God. Seek first his kingdom and all of these things will be given to you as well. And the thing is, we have been trained by our culture to view the world through a kind of sacred and secular divide. And don't get me wrong, that's useful for a liberal democracy, it's useful for a pluralistic society and all that. But if God's presence is indeed everywhere... If, if there is no place where God and his kingdom is not invading into and breaking into the world, then for followers of Jesus, it is not possible, let alone practical, to act as though there is a divide. If the kingdom is the center, uh, then where you work, where you play, where you spend your time, that will become your school of discipleship. That will be the means by which you serve God and love others. And so to end, so what does all that, money, stuff, possessions, have to do with the complexity of our lives and our desires? What does that have to do with the kingdom of God? What, if any of it, does it have to do with living a simple life? Well, one way to think about the practice of simplicity is think of it as training your desire. It's an invitation not to skim along the surface of life pulled in a thousand different directions but with your time, with your resources, with your attention, with your calendar, to go deep in what really matters. And so the experiment for this week, for those of you who are following along in our, our uh, practices guide, is just to sit with that question, what do you really want? Imagine Jesus asking you the question he asked his disciples, the question that he asked Bartimaeus, the question that he asked James and John, what is it that you want? And hold that question out before God and see what emerges from the bedrock of your soul, your deepest desire, passing through all the layers of the strong desires that are pulling for your attention. To take an honest and intentional look before God at what it is that you love and long for and value the most. The thing that you want to say at the end of your life that this is who I was called to be in the kingdom. This is what I was called to have my life be about. It's an invitation to try to get that out on paper, to get that in a picture, uh, language somehow. Because if you don't have a vision of some kind of end, you really have nowhere to aim your life. And then to ask the question, how do all the things that I do, the things that I that occupy my mind, my space, my attention, how do they either pull me into or push me away from life in the kingdom? Now, once you have a clear sense of that, it's how do you eliminate all the things that are not God? I'll put this a, a different way. Simplicity is not so much about saying no to that really awesome eight-person tent that you happened to see at the REI garage sale when you were buying a birthday present for your wife, hypothetically. <laughs> it's about figuring out what to say 
yes to God and his kingdom looks like in your life. Where on the heart level, your focus is on Jesus and his kingdom. Once you know that, it will be much easier to say no to all the things that are not that. That may or may not mean buying the tent, just to be clear. Like Aquinas said, every choice is a thousand renunciations. And you don't have to go off into the woods like Thoreau. You don't have to live a minimalist existence in the woods. But the heart posture, the desire is the same, to find the life which is truly life. And the thing is, and maybe the most frustrating thing about this, is that there is no one-size-fits-all approach. We are complex creatures. I am complex in a way that is different from maybe where your complexities bounce off of the soul of your life. You might have a gift for hospitality. You might, it might just be the, the thing that you are made for, to welcome people into your home, to allow them to become the best of who they are, to, to give them the best of what you have, and in that space to, to taste the presence of God in the fellowship. That might be your thing. And so simplifying for you isn't going to be cutting all that stuff out of your life. You might be a person who has this gift and this passion for making beauty through music, and you play all of the instruments that you have in your house. And so this is not some sort of legalistic formula where like, oh, I've got three guitars, I can only play one at any one time, so i got to get rid of the other two. It's not what this is about. The goal is to identify and to make space for how you can be in alignment with God, how God created you to be, and how God is calling you to work in his presence and, and purpose in the world, and then to let all that is not God fall away. And a good way to start is to write out your values. What are the things that God has put in you and then take a look at your calendars, your commitments, financial, otherwise, all the things that take your attention. Take a look at your schedule. If you were to chart out an ideal week, like one that was in alignment with your deepest values, what would that look like? What are the things that keep you from living that way? To look at the things and ask, what is the actual cost of the thing? Not just in terms of money, but like going to a book club is not just the cost of the book and the cost of one hour of your time. You got to read the book, hopefully. It's the commute to and from to get to the place where you're going to talk about the book with others. It's asking that question, am I going to be too tired when I get there? Am I going to be out too late? Is it going to cost me the next thing? What about the relationships that I'll be saying yes to for this? Well, that means I'm going to be saying no to other relationships. And let me give you a tip. This is not going to be about looking at, you're going to look at your calendar, you're going to look at all these things, you'll be like, dang, I've got a lot of good things here. It's not a really helpful question to ask, is this a good thing? Because sometimes you will have to say no to the good thing to say yes to the thing that God is calling you to. It's this prayerful, intentional laying up before God your whole life and asking, what is it that you want me to pick up so that I can be in alignment with your kingdom? You take a look at your spending, at your credit card statement or mint or whatever it is that you use. How is what I am doing here in alignment with my deepest values? What isn't? What doesn't fit? And then see where that takes you. See if it helps you become more clear, more free. And I imagine some of you are hearing this and you're thinking, uh, that does not sound simple. That sounds actually quite daunting. And 
yes, I mean, unwinding all of the ways that consumer culture and achievement culture kind of are built into us, have formed and malformed our desires, it's what Richard Foster calls the complexity of simplicity. It, it takes some time. But it's taking the time and the trust that on the other side of that is freedom. God has come in Jesus to put the hope of salvation on full display and to invite us into that grace as we integrate our complex lives around him and his kingdom. The end of all of this is to look like Jesus who lived a simple life and was remarkably at home both on the world and in the kingdom. And so you got to keep that, the end in mind as you begin, that simplicity for Jesus was not some duty-bound way of earning it was a means of surrendering mind, body, and soul into the joy of God's presence and the joy of God's purpose. That's what it is for us. So let us pray. Father, we come to you as children asking that you would help us unspool and unwind the complexities of our lives. And we ask it so we can set our hearts on you, on the truth, on the goodness, on the beauty of your kingdom. We ask this so that we may enjoy your presence and delight in your purposes as Jesus did. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.